You are listening to the DIY Recording Guys podcast, your one-stop information source for DIY music production, with your hosts, Fadim Karaz and Benjamin Hall. All right, DIY Recording Guys, Episode 9. I'm your host, Vadim, from Calm Frog Recording. And I'm Benjamin Hall from DreamLoud Studio. All right. I feel like we, we've, I've been editing these these last couple episodes. We're always so awkward on that intro. I know. It's like, it's like are you going to introduce never, me or, okay, I'll yeah, introduce yeah, myself. I, okay. <laughs> it's all good though. We'll, we'll get it eventually. It's only episode yeah, nine. We'll so, you know, give, give us a break, guys. <laughs> yeah, we'll get it. We'll get it. Um, cool, man. So how's it going, Ben? It's going good, man. I just had my bachelor party last weekend, a surprise bachelor party. I was not expecting it at all. Yeah. So <laughs> I mean, just for, from my perspective, what happened was we had, we were lined up to record an episode, this episode, we were lined up to record this episode and I get a Facebook message from your fiance and she's like, Hey, <laughs> just so you know, Ben's having a surprise bachelor party on Saturday, so he will not be recording the podcast. And I was like, <laughs> right on, cool. But at the same time, I'm thinking in the back of my mind, like, I know I've seen your calendar, right? <laughs> yeah. I know how to the minute you like everything planned. I was like, oh man, he's he's gonna really be surprised. So, uh, so say something about it. How'd it go? It went great. And first of all, I have to say that like credit to my best best man Dan and and my fiance Eileen because they really planned it out so well and they picked the perfect time and weekend where I had like an open point that I wasn't letting anybody else down and I had time that I could spend away so credit to those guys for planning it it was awesome um yeah just a bunch of uh a bunch of friends from different parts of my life all came together so it was cool uh it's amazing right it was cool to see like people that have never met before but have all been my friends uh just kind of all getting along it, it was really cool and and nobody felt even even one of my friends cuz um one of the guys that came to the the bachelor party, I've not been friends with him that long, but I play with him. He's the guitar player in our band, Nafel. Okay. And uh, we've only been friends for the last year. And he said, I was a little bit nervous about coming because I knew that like, I'm not going to know anybody else. And, and he said that, you know, from the beginning, everybody was introducing themselves. Oh, how do you know Ben? Blah, blah, blah. So it was just really cool to see like how all my friends have kind of that friendly vibe to them and they were all getting along so it was it was just a great time yeah that's very cool and then the the cool thing about bachelor parties like that is then all those people kind of get to know each other in like a dude setting and then at the wedding it's like a really nice baseline right it's true established rapport and then you can uh you can have a lot of fun at the wedding yeah that's cool stuff man that's awesome man yeah I'm, i'm looking forward to it so what's new with you man Oh man, not too much. Um, what's new with me? Well, I uh, I got that ebook out that I've been working on for it feels like five months, right? Yeah. So, so that's good. That's out there. I'm happy to get that completed. Other than that, um, I feel like I'm always recovering from a cold. Every time I see my little nieces and nephews, Ugh. I feel like I my wife has like an iron immune system. She never gets sick, no matter what. But no matter how careful I am, I always come down with something. Oh, so man. I'm, uh, I'm perpetually recovering. I feel you there. I'm not normally that sick, but I always get like a sore throat. 
Like it just it it happens <laughs> like once every three months. Yeah, yeah, it's really annoying. But I, I feel you there, man. Well, congrats on the ebook going out. I I heard the bumper on the episode and it was really good. So yeah, yeah, thanks. Yeah, I've been putting the bumper on the past couple episodes, but I'm just I'm just happy to put a bow on that thing. How can people find that? Yeah, so you find that just go to howtorecordyourband.com. It's a free PDF. You get over 70 pages of information. It's similar to a lot of it has crossover with like the first four or five episodes that we yeah. did. Yeah. Um, it just helps you, you know, get started and level up a few things. And did I contribute anything to that? Maybe just the part of the you drum did. part. You okay. did contribute. Yeah, I ran, um, I ran some of the drum preparation stuff by you. Because I know how meticulous you are with setting up your uh, your kit at home, and you get a fantastic drum sound. Well, thank as you. This is evidence from your portfolio. So yeah, I can't believe how good it. Actually, listening to your portfolio, I was like, because I do a lot of programming for for musicians using samples, and I was like, man, acoustic <laughs> kit, like a a, a well tuned, well played, well mic'd acoustic kit is really like unbeatable. It is pretty amazing, and I don't want to get off on a sidetrack because I, I do want to save uh, an episode specifically for drums not too far down the road. Yeah, that's coming up. We're going to do that at some point soon. But I've noticed the same thing because I, for a lot of my clients, I equally do the the virtual instrument drum kit versus the real recorded. Yeah, just because... Yeah, if they don't want to come in or they don't have a drummer or whatever. Exactly, and there's some things about... a a virtual kit that I cannot get to sound like a real kit. Like as good as the sound, as good as the drums sound, there's just something, something, I guess you could say better about an acoustic kit, but we can talk about that on that episode. I don't want to get too off in the weeds about that. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. So we're, okay, cool. So today's topic is bit rate. I'm probably going to, maybe I'll edit in some like horror horror film music there (laughs) yeah it's a daunting it's a daunting subject so we're gonna we're gonna do a deep dive into bitrate first we're gonna talk about what it is and then we're gonna get into how to apply it and its principles to to your recordings and then i know ben and i have we've had some offline disagreements about sample rate which is a part of bitrate and uh, we'll see. We'll see if Ben can convince me yes. to uh, change my evil, low-down, lazy ways. So yes. that'll be fun. So to start with bitrate, I, I have this. Um, I'm gonna say I'm gonna give you the really super condensed explanation of bitrate in about two seconds, and it's gonna maybe be confusing. And then by the time we go through the in-depth thing, hopefully it'll make sense. So bitrate is basically a, like a two-dimensional way to quantify your audio resolution. All right, in a nutshell, that's what it is. It's composed of two different terms. It's composed of the term bit depth and sample rate. So you take bit depth and sample rate, you put them together, you get bit rate. So to start, we'll start talking about bit depth first. And the way I want to start talking about this is Want you to close your eyes unless you're driving, listening to this. Don't, don't close. <laughs> yeah, your don't eyes. close your eyes. I can close um, my eyes now, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna, yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna participate in the experiment. Okay, you don't have, you don't really have to close your eyes. Okay, but just, just pretend you have a piece of graph paper. Okay, and on that piece of graph paper, you take a pencil and you draw a sine curve, which is basically like a letter S on its on its side, right? And you do this smoothly, so without lifting your pencil off the paper. 
So what you have there is it kind of analogous, quote unquote, to an analog signal, because an analog signal, another way to say it is it's a continuous signal, which means, you know, we can we know it's continuous because you drew the curve without lifting your pencil. Okay, now let's say I said, okay, you have to approximate your curve as closely as you can by shading in the little blocks on the graph paper. So you would pick, you would start at the beginning, you would pick the block closest, and you would color it in, and then you would keep going and coloring in the blocks that uh, match your curve as closely as possible. And you can kind of imagine when you're done, you'll have something that sort of represents the curve, but it'll look a little jagged, and it won't look exactly like it, right? Mm -hmm. So, and, and you can imagine there uh, that, and this, this of course, is, is an analogy for digital audio, which another way to describe a digital signal is to say it's a discrete signal. It's discrete meaning it's composed of little individual units. So in this case, our little squares. Hold on, so Vadim, I gotta, I gotta go get my calculus book. Yeah, <laughs> is it too much? No, it's, no not, it's... it's not too much. It's just reminding me of my days like learning calculus because it, it it's essentially the same thing. You're taking the uh, you're taking a whole bunch of different um, uh, squares to represent that curve. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, totally. It's going to it's going to get worse before it gets better. <laughs> We're going to get more calculus. So, you can imagine that if you if your graph paper had smaller squares, you would get something that looks even closer to your curve, right? It's kind of like resolution on your TV or something like that. So, the smaller your squares, the closer you get to your curve, and if your squares were conceivably small enough, you would get something that was like indistinguishable from the curve, yeah. right? Yeah. So, we could break these this this concept of resolution down into two sections. One is how many squares does your sheet have in the vertical dimension? And two is how many squares does your sheet have in the horizontal direction, right? So when we talk about bit depth, bit depth is kind of your resolution in that vertical direction. So the higher your bit depth, uh, the more squares you can fit from top to bottom on your sheet, okay? Makes sense. So the next thing I wanna define and jump in at any time, Ben, if you have anything um, no. to add or subtract. No, this is great. I'll, <laughs> because... I'll let you go because there are some things I can add, but you, I think you might get to them anyways. So I'll, I'll let you keep going. Yeah. All right. So the next thing I want to define here with a little easier visual example is noise floor. And we'll see, you'll see why this is important in a second. But when we talk about noise floor, we're talking about, or you might have heard of like signal to noise ratio. Basically, every system has some noise in it. This is because we're using electronic components. We have maybe some grounding issues in our house. We have, you know, electromagnetic interference from, from other devices and so on. So every system is going to have some baseline level of noise, and hopefully it's low enough that it doesn't affect yeah. us too much. But what we want is we want to have a high signal to noise ratio. So we want our signal to be far above the noise floor. And the, the visual analogy I'm going to use here is pretend, Ben, pretend you and I are in a field or pretend we're in a backyard and there's a fence between us. Okay. Let's say there's a four foot fence between us. Okay. So I'm on one side of the fence, you're on the other side of the fence and I have a camera and I'm trying to take a picture of your magnificent being, right? I okay. want to capture as much of you as I can. So you're my signal. But when I take my picture and I look at it, I have four foot of fence and I have only two feet of you, right? So that four foot of fence is kind of the noise floor. Only the signal that's above the noise floor is like what we can actually capture, right? That makes sense, yeah. So that's our noise floor. And 
for intents and purposes, it's fixed, right? Our system, I mean, we can maybe do some, if you have like a really noisy system, you might be able to do some things to reduce it. But for all intents and purposes, that noise floor is fixed. So that's noise floor. The next thing I want to define is dynamic range. This is all going to make sense. We're going to wrap it all up into why bit depth is important. But for dynamic range, I'm going to use the same example. You're on one side of the fence. I'm on the other side of the fence. But this time, instead of just standing there, you're jumping up and down on a trampoline. Okay. Okay. So that's it, it, you can think of that as like a continuous signal, right? You're jumping up smoothly and then you're coming down smoothly. And if I were to measure the difference of your head at its tallest height minus the, your dis, uh, your distance of your head to the ground at its shortest height, that would be the dynamic range. Yeah. So it's the difference between the loudest part of the signal to the softest part of the signal. All right, so that's our dynamic range. One more, uh, two more terms. One is headroom. So headroom, same example. You're jumping up and down, but now there's high voltage electrical line above your head. Okay, right? yeah. And <laughs> so the difference between in height between the electrical line and your head at its highest point, that's the headroom. Hmm. You don't want to run out of headroom because you'll get electric. Well, actually, you wouldn't get electrocuted in that example, but... <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so that's headroom. Yeah. All right, so we have dynamic range, we have headroom. Um, now let's talk about how this example would apply for digital audio. And digital audio, because we don't have a continuous signal, we have a disc discrete signal. So instead of jumping on a trampoline, you could picture that you are climbing up and down a ladder. Okay, mm. And that ladder has rungs. And you could imagine that the more rungs the ladder has... The, the more your motion will look like you're jumping on a trampoline. It's the same thing as that graph paper example, right? More rungs is kind of more resolution. Yeah. So in reality, when we talk about something like noise floor, just like all we have is really in digital audio is the ladder. So we have to put noise on the ladder. We have to put our signal on the ladder. Everything has to go on this ladder. So you can imagine like if our ladder only has five rungs, we put all the noise on the first rung, well, that noise is then one-fifth of our signal. That's 20% of our signal. Mm -hmm. If the ladder has 10 rungs, then the noise is only one-tenth of the signal. It's only 10% of the signal. Yeah. So, that's, so you can see how more rungs gives you more distance between your signal and your noise floor, which is good. Mm -hmm. um, so you might ask now, I'm almost done here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you might ask now, how, uh, how many rungs does our digital ladder have? And you might think like, okay, you've heard of 24-bit audio. Does that mean the ladder has 24 rungs? But it actually, it actually doesn't. And the way it works is you got to picture like a hangman board where you have 24 spaces. That's for 24-bit audio. Each space can be either a zero or a one. So to find out how many rungs the ladder has, that's like how many permutations you can get. So it's actually 16 million seven hundred and seventy seven thousand two hundred and sixteen rungs okay so that's kind of the ladder we're working with with 24-bit audio so i'll wrap up here by saying that and maybe you can you know you can disagree with me here but i feel like one of the least controversial things in digital audio is to record at 24 bits um and that's for a number of reasons which i'm sure we'll get into I would completely agree with that just from the the simple standpoint of I've seen a lot of sessions from professional records. The sample rate might vary, but it's almost inevitably going to be 24. 
I've never seen it go less than 24 bits and it almost 99% of the time it's 24 bit. Yeah, I agree with you. And so the, um, the, the standard for distribu- distributing music, like what you would get back from a mastering engineer is most likely 16 bit. And that comes from something called the red book standard, which is, uh, back in the day, I mean, CDs, audio CDs are, are less and less in vogue, but Uh, The standard for audio CDs was 16 bits, 44.1 kilohertz. And that's fine for for listening back. But when we're talking about recording music and processing music, 24 bits is where it's at. It's just a nice number. It gives you more resolution is kind of not necessary, although we can, um, you know, we can talk about 32 bit float if you want. But less is not recommended. And in fact, most DAWs, this was something that surprised me, Ben. I actually was hanging out with a mastering engineer. And he was telling me that even if you load a 16-bit file into your DAW, as soon as you like touch a fader or anything, if you had a bit scope, it's actually kind of internally converting it to 24 bits and doing the processing at 24 bits. Really? Yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty interesting. So, is that somewhat related to because you know you know more about this than I do? I can already tell from the amount you've talked about it. But uh, is that also related? to um what 32-bit float is because that's essentially just a digital that's a digital thing only am i correct in saying that yeah yeah anytime we talk about bits it's a digital thing so my understanding on 32-bit float is like some plugins will do processing uh at at even a higher bit depth and they do that because of that headroom concept so Mm. If you're running your signal really hot into a plugin, some plugins will actually use 32 bits to kind of, so they can turn the signal down and internally and get some more headroom to avoid things like clipping, avoid hitting you know your head on the power line. Yeah, and then they'll kind of spit back out uh, 16 or 24 bits back at the uh, back at the output. Okay, that's always what kind of confused me about that. It's it's not so much a sample or I'm sorry, a bit depth that you choose. It's more or less the way that your plugin or DAW is processing the the information that's coming in. Yeah, I'm to be honest with you, I'm still a little bit confused on this myself because I know like my you know, Pro Tools will let me, I think, set up a session at 32-bit float, um, which I never do. And uh, from the little I've read about it, actually studying up for this, uh, that's what I saw was that it's, it's something that internal plugins use, but it, I, I think you can set up a session in it. And I'm not 100% sure why you would do that. So I was actually going to ask you, but it sounds like we're equally equally confused there. I know that my Studio One setup, um, it will do 32-bit float, but mm-hmm. I've never felt the need to use it because 24-bit depth is more than enough dynamic range to do anything that you need to do. Yeah, agreed. And, and the nice thing with um, 24 bits is you can what it means is because again because you're you have more rungs on the ladder and your noise floor is lower it means you don't have to record your signals as loud like back in the days mm. of tape tape had a ton of noise so the goal was always like get your signal as loud as you can going in so that you could have a really good signal to noise ratio but with 24 bits you can record you know with a lot of headroom, you don't have to go super loud on your preamps and you, you still have the noise floor is still low enough that you'll be you'll be fine. Even if you turn that quiet signal up, the noise won't really come up appreciably. Hmm. I think where we should go from here is let's let's bring this uh 
into more of the real world application. Why is this dynamic range so important? Yeah. Why is good? Good. Pull me back, man. Pull me back from the edge. No, it's <laughs> it's all good. But I, I want to take a step back and let's just say that um, I'm I'm sure that there's somebody listening out there that you've not spent that much time in uh, recording music or you've never maybe heard these terms before. Maybe you've, I'm sure that you've heard them before, but you maybe don't understand exactly uh, what they are. You just know that they're involved in audio. So um, the way we think about audio, especially for recording, is a little bit strange in comparison to how we experience uh, sound out in the real world. Mm. Because uh, let's say I had no knowledge of recording or what digital workflow is or audio, I would always imagine that uh, recording something louder meant that we were turning something up or maybe the idea that there isn't a upper limit of how loud something can be because in the real world you can you can always get a sound pressure wave that's more compressed. So I guess that would be more loud, but the way we think about recorded music is kind of the opposite way that we think of it in terms of uh, subtracting backwards from a impenetrable ceiling. And that's why bit depth and dynamic range is so important because there's a certain level of recording that we can't go over whenever, whenever we're recording or else we'll get clipping and horrible digital distortion that doesn't sound good. So um, we want things to be as loud as possible to give us the most dynamic range without going over, without going over that, that clipping limit. So really the way that we make, um, we lower the noise floor is basically by, uh, I almost imagine it as maybe taking out the first floor and then you have the basement below you. Mm. Does that analogy kind of make <laughs> sense? It's, it's kind of an yeah. opposite way of, of thinking about things. And um, the less uh, bit depths that you have, the less uh, decibels of dynamic range you have to play with. And so it might not be as important when you're recording, but when you go later into the mixing and mastering phases and you're compressing and you're essentially purposely limiting that dynamic range in later phases, all of that noise floor comes up and and, mm, and starts to come yep. into the uh, uh, the realm of the more usable audio that we want to play around with. Yeah, that's a good point. As soon as you start compressing things and all of a sudden that, that noise floor comes up because a lot of times what you're doing is you're, you're bringing up the quietest part of your signal. Well, guess what? The noise floor is there and it's coming up with it. So yeah, you're right. And, and I like what you said there a lot. In digital audio, we have a ceiling which is called you know, zero decibels full scale. And that's kind of the, the tippy top of your little meter on your DAW. And you know, if you go above that, it turns red and it gets angry and this and the sound is not good. So I, I really like what you said there is really you have a fixed ceiling and you got to fit everything below that ceiling. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so there's a lot of things that come into play when we start talking about this. And that includes loudness wars and uh, all of the, th maybe we can touch on that really quickly, but I have a couple of practical examples where um, this very thing came into play and, it helped me determine 
what signal level that I record at and such. So mm. uh, the first thing was, uh, this is more of a mixing example, but I still think it's applicable for recording. But uh, I was running some Waves plugins, and like we, like we talked about in, I believe it was episode eight, maybe seven, but uh, one of the more recent past episodes, we talked about one of my re- recording workflows is I have plugins on my DAW whenever I'm recording. So I'm essentially monitoring through um, plugins that are emulating analog gear. And then I, I print to uh, what the plugins are playing through. And I didn't realize, but I had uh, my CLA compressor set to analog mode. And mm, like the 60... That has noise. Yeah, the 60, um, the 60 hertz analog mode. And I didn't know what it was doing. I just like the vibe that it was adding. But... I had that on every single track and then after 40 tracks all of a sudden what was unnoticeable noise just became this infuriating hiss in the background wow i didn't even think about that because it's the same noise for every track and it's kind of like adding up right yeah that's a great point Ben. i never thought of that yeah so (laughs) that's where it becomes um really important to have a large dynamic range and to i guess really be careful about what your uh what kind of emulations you're using because a lot of that old emulation stuff it just adds noise that the hardware units had because that's that's kind of musical to our ears you know a little bit of noise is not a bad thing that's so, it's so funny though, isn't it? Like I, I saw an, uh, an advertisement for this app on your phone that like makes your videos that you take with your cell phone look like, a, like an old crappy VHS recording <laughs> yeah. with like the lines there. <laughs> like, it's so funny. Cause you know, back in the analog days, everybody tried their hardest to like, to eliminate noise. And then we modeled the gear yep. and like, now we add the noise back in because it, it sounds a little more less sterile i guess right at times yeah yeah so funny so i do a, i, I want to touch back on what you said about um headroom too because i do agree with you yep. that headroom isn't as important as it used to be maybe when we were uh when people used to record to tape but at the same time i still like to record at a signal almost as hot as i possibly can go for and my rule of thumb really yeah and my rule of thumb is I, uh, especially when I'm recording somebody else, I like the signals to peak right around negative six decibels full scale. All right, man, this is going to be good. Preach it. Yeah. Why do you, what's your, what's your logic? It's basically, um, it's basically the same reason as my last example, because sometimes I like that analog modeling. And if I can get the signal as hot as I possibly can, I can add more of that analog modeling that mm. that introduces noise. And then I have, because I'm mixing and mastering a lot of these projects myself too. So when I get farther down the line and I'm compressing, I'm bringing up that noise floor and it gives me a lot more headroom to keep that noise from coming up too far to be noticeable. I'll buy it, man. Yeah, I, I thought we were going to have some disagreement there, but I can see what you're, I mean, you're basically, effectively, you're trying to really emulate the analog workflow and in doing that because your emulations have noise you need to push your signal a little bit hotter yeah um and i guess because you're running through a compressor effectively well no you still have to 
you still have to worry about clipping because you, yeah, you could still clip at the uh, at the converters, right? Right, because it's not an analog, it's not a hardware unit um, compressor. Right. So this is that's actually an important. Let's let's maybe talk about that for a minute. So what in your setup? Remember, if we think back to our digital recording chain, you're going in to a preamp, and then your preamp is going to a converter. And then your digital and and your your analog emulations are already in the digital realm, so you you can still you can clip at that converter and get some uh, some unpleasantness. So, do you do anything with your analog signal before or after? Well, I guess after the preamp to to mitigate that risk of clipping. That's a good question. Um, when I record my bass, even whenever I have other bass players come in, I have a um, I have a really nice compressor pedal. Um, it's a dark glass. Okay. It's a dark glass compressor pedal, and I love it because it's really transparent. So it's not coloring your. Uh, it, it won't color your tone that much. And that's basically it's a basically a hardware unit. It's, it's a pedal. It's not a rack sure. like compressor. But I love recording through that because it helps to eliminate the um, the chance of clipping on like really loud notes. Those really spiky transients yeah, and stuff like that yeah, so bass bass can be very dynamic so that's um what about vocals do you do anything special on vocals to to prevent clipping i well that's a good question too so um basically vocals is the same as pretty much all the other instruments that i record because i have a totally digital workflow right now so i like to have my vocalists uh at least after warming up that is um sing the loudest part of the song so I know like what the top end of their uh how loud their singing is going to get at the loudest parts. And so I'll base mm. I'll base everything off of that. And um I don't worry so much if, you know, maybe they're singing at a quiet part and it's all the way down around maybe negative twenty four or negative twenty. Uh for for essentially the same reason. Like it's not ideal. I would prefer if the signal the whole way through was right smack dab at negative six uh, decibels full scale. But because we have so much uh, dynamic range in the digital realm, I just want to make sure that I don't go over that. Gotcha. So you're, that's, that's a really good point. So, so two things there. One is, this is also a good time to explain why we talk about, in digital audio, we talk about negative decibels and it's for that same reason that ben said is we have a ceiling so because we have a ceiling which we above the ceiling is clipping we'll call that ceiling zero and so so ben is saying like okay he's trying to keep his the peak of his signal at around minus six so six decibels below clipping um and you're saying yeah sometimes at quiet parts you might go to minus 24 so i like what you said there you're saying you you have the singers sing the loudest part and you set your preamp basically to that and then yeah. you can kind of um yeah that's that's really interesting um do you when you track something like vocals are you, do you ever uh, ad adjust your preamp settings like hmm, that's a good question between the verse and the chorus let's say or do you try to keep it fixed I the whole session i try to keep it fixed the whole time why do you do something different I used to keep it fixed the whole time, but I've changed my workflow a little bit. I think we talked about it in the workflow episode, mm -hmm. or maybe it was recording vocals episode. But now what I like to do... See, I, I had this issue, especially with less experienced vocalists, where I try to do the same thing. I say, you know, sing me the, the loud... Let's sing, let's go through the chorus or whatever. 
But inevitably, I find if I do 10 takes, the takes get progressively louder. Yeah, because that's true. The singer, the singer is warmed up. They're getting more comfortable. And I found that I was kind of getting nervous a little bit. What I see, So what I started doing was I, I typically like to record all the verses first. And once I have all my verse sections, I'll start recording the chorus and I will make preamp adjustments for the chorus you know assuming the verse and the chorus have have different loudnesses yeah it doesn't, it's not always doesn't always work out that way you kind of have to know the song but yeah i try to um i definitely don't like uh, you know i don't think you would want to turn up and then turn back down but i'm okay with having two different you know having starting at one setting and then moving to a different setting i've never tr- i've never tried that but i can't see anything wrong with it yeah. So anyway, it's um, something to consider if you have very like different dynamic parts in your in your song. Um, so I record. I try to peak at minus twelve. Oh, you try to peak peak at minus twelve. Okay. Yeah. That's much much quieter than I do. It's quiet. Yeah. And and the the main reason for that is to avoid clipping. Um, I I really want to avoid it at all costs, especially for vocals, because I find. Again, like vocalists, depending on their experience level, some vocalists are, you know, kind of instinctually pulled back from the mic at loud parts, but some vocalists actually get closer to the mic for loud parts. Mm. I'm I'm so nervous about having an unusable take because of clipping that I like to keep my my peak a little bit lower than that. And again, I think I found that my noise floor is low enough with the 24-bit depth setup that I'm comfortable peaking that low. Knowing that I can turn in the mix, I can turn that clip up and not have issues with noise. I can't see anything wrong with what you're saying. I mean, your thought process for picking minus 12 is exactly the same why I pick negative six. (laughs) (laughs) The reason I pick negative negative six is because I used to pick negative three and drummers would peak my mics all the time. Okay. And, And I've honestly thought about maybe switching and going down to negative nine. Or something like that because even sometimes I actually have the problem sometimes where and this is kind of an issue with a a entirely digital setup um, because there's no compressors on those drums to be able to absorb some of that impact because it's just Mm. it's just loud sound pressure level whenever you're recording a drummer and sometimes I'll have my mics especially my condenser mics that I'll have on the hi-hat or ride and I'll have drummers peaking those mics, and I have no gain on my preamps whatsoever. Oh, do they? Um, do you ever have like, do you have pads on any of these mics or preamps? Yeah, on my setup, it's a little bit limited because the focus rate I have it only has pads on. I think the first two. Yeah, yeah, I got. Yeah, I know. I know what you're saying. Yep. So what do you what do you do in that case? Honestly, oh man, I'm gonna get in trouble for saying this. <laughs> If I only go over by like a decibel on a drum part, I don't sweat it. Yeah, totally, man. And the reason the reason is is because for drums in particular and percu- percussion instruments, that hit is so short that you can't hear the distortion. I t- couldn't agree more with you. And and even um there there's times even during mixing where I'll see like, "Oh, I'm clipping there." But I can't really hear it. Yeah. Right there's if you're just barely clipping, sometimes it's it's not a problem. And, and I like what you said there is because uh, like you have a really something really transient like a drum hit. 
yeah, it, it might not be noticeable. It's so, it, and I, I should clarify, I'm not trying to peak at minus 12. I'm trying to hub, I'm trying to be at minus 12. Okay, that's much I'm different. I'm trying to keep my signal kind of at minus 12 as much of the time as I can. So maybe, yeah, I'm probably peaking at like minus nine is probably realistically where I'm, where I'm at. Okay. Yeah, so we're, we're probably right around the same yeah. ball, ballpark. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I, I have noticed, I'm curious what you think about this, but I feel like sometimes I've recorded a vocalist and they get really loud for a bridge or a chorus. And sometimes I'll hit that high note and when they hit that high note, it's, it's much more of a sustained volume. And it might be right up at like negative one or negative 0.5 decibels right below that, that peaking line. And I swear that I hear some weird artifacts on on the other end when I'm processing it. And so Yeah. I'm curious what what you think about that or if you've run into that before too. I have. I've definitely run into that and I don't know exactly, but my what my guess is it could be any number of things. So clipping is something that can happen at a lot of different points, I think, in the chain. And even though your meters may not show it, you could still be clipping a converter or you might be clipping a plug-in that mm. you're running through or i've even had i was even clipping like coming back out of my interface so like my the way i i use my interface is i set my like my headphone level up pretty high because i have a like a headphone amp that i'm running through mm. and i was i think i was clipping on the output oh of really the headphones yeah and so the, the 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 funny thing is about this and we should probably do a whole episode at some point on gain staging but you know your meter is really only looking your meter on your DAW is looking at like one specific point in your chain and <laughs> you could have issues if you're not careful at other points in the chain so my my guess is you were running into something like that that's a good point i wanted to bring that up though because even though like we just said uh the meters might be saying you're not clipping you c- could actually be uh doing things to your audio that's degradating it yeah i actually <laughs> i heard um do you remember the band helmet yeah yeah so i was i was reading um about they had like a famous album uh was it called lucy i think or something like that okay. it was, it's a it's a great 90s you know kind of grunge album but everything is so distorted on that album it sounds awesome by the way it's an andy wallace mixed album oh, it cool. sounds the drums sound huge so like good distortion yeah good distortion but i was reading an interview with um the singer and he was talking about recording one of the tracks and he was like we clipped the vocals so hard but like the take was so good that we just kept it and i'm like it sounds great. I don't know. Everything hmm. is so everything is a wall of noise anyway, but like that just goes to show you like it happened in a totally professional, you know, probably tens of thousands of dollars recording situation and they still kept it because the vocal take was just so strong. Yeah. I think the take home message though is that if you can if you could set up your system and your gain staging to avoid that before the fact, <laughs> it's going to be better. So, yeah. Yeah, sure. I, I think the take-home message is, you know, uh, record at a moderately loud volume, but you don't have to sweat being too loud because there's so much dynamic range in in yes. modern recording. You don't have to worry about it. Yeah, don't worry about it, uh, but try, you know, try to leave yourself that headroom. Try to, you know, keep prepared for the unexpected, especially with the vocals. Vocals tend to be kind of the most dynamic thing. 
All right, man. Let's get into sample raid. Yeah. Why don't you um? Do you want to explain sample raid quickly, and then give me your uh, give me your pitch, man? Give yeah, me your I'll sales give you the pitch. I'll give you the layman's the uh, description, <laughs> the layman's uh, description of what uh, sample rate is. So it's basically. I feel like is that is that a dig at me? Are you are you did I go in too too deep? No, it's not that <laughs> much of a no. It's not a dig at all. <laughs> I I'm always like, dang, like you did. It sounds like you wrote a thesis on like every topic that we go over, and I think it's great, you know. But oh man, yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge nerd. I'm I'm sorry. Oh, it's great. <laughs> I would I would totally take the time to dive into it, but a lot of this stuff, like I'm self taught, and I just kind of picked it up from messing around with it. You know what I mean? Yeah, man, for sure. Yeah. So how I would describe, and I'm curious what you think too, but how I would describe sample rate is, it's uh, how a computer renders an audio wave file. And so basically it's the amount of times that uh your especially your digital converter is taking little snapshots or slices of an audio wave that's coming in. So when we talk about uh 44.1 sample rate as CD quality, what that means is that's 44.1 kilohertz or 44,100 hertz. That means that every second you have an audio signal go through your digital converter. Uh, your converter is taking a snapshot 44,100 times. Essentially is what that means. And we have variable sample rates that we can work with in audio. And normally when we're talking about recording, uh, the lowest or the smallest sample rate size that will go is CD quality, 44.1 kilohertz. But there are, um, that exist out there, sample rates that are much lower than that. Um, for example, telephone, old school telephone lines are 8,000 hertz. Really? I didn't know that. Yes. And what's considered HD audio, which I think that would be like, cell phones that have an HD connection, that's double that. So 16,000 hertz. And we're still- That's like that. modern, modern day cell phones? I believe so, yes. Really? Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So then we have um, above that 44.1 SCD quality, 44.1 kilohertz. Um, but then we have much higher sample rates than that. Um, the next one, probably a practical use is 48 kilohertz. That's DVD. HD, yeah. um, HD audio. Yeah, I, th I think a lot of lot of video formats use uh, forty eight yeah, kilohertz. Forty eight, and then we have ones way above that. We have eighty eight, ninety two, ninety six, uh, one seventy six point something, and one ninety. Is it one ninety two? One ninety two, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So that means you're taking if you're recording at one ninety two, you're uh, digital converters are taking 192,000 slices of audio every second that that audio goes by. Yeah, yeah. Which means so putting that back together to to bit rate, that means so at at a, you know at 192, 192,000 times per second, it's looking at the audio and putting it on one of those ladder rungs, right? Mm -hmm. That we talked about. Okay, so. Go on. Yes. So why is this important? An interesting thing about 
the way we hear sound and frequencies is that now I'm going to compare it to, I'm going to compare audio waves to, um, I guess we'll just speak specifically about musical keys and the way that we hear frequencies and things of that nature. So, uh, in Western standard equal, what is it called? Equal temperament? I forget, but, um, uh, what we use in Western music is a scale where 440 hertz equals an A, an A key on the piano. And if you half that, 220 hertz is also an A. If you double that, mm -hmm. 880 hertz is also an A. So the interesting thing about this is um, to double the... To double the uh, the frequency gives you an octave of a higher sound. And what we're essentially thinking about is that wave is twice as compressed, I guess. If you're, if you're looking at waves uh, as they would be represented in your DAW on a screen, so like Vadim was saying earlier, you have this sideways S shape, like a sine wave. Um, they're getting compressed... Uh, I guess twice as much as you go up octaves. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And you mean compressed in the time domain. So you yes. have like, if you had an S at, let's say, 440 hertz, 440 like cycles per second, if you double that, it would, it, you would get twice as many kind of S's in the same time span and you would get the same note, but an octave higher, right? Yes. So this is all very technical and, and, physics kind of stuff we're talking about now but the reason it's important is because as you can see as we get to higher and higher notes higher and higher frequencies the more samples we have going per second the more accurate your digital uh, converters and computer can represent that really smooth s looking analog way uh, wave in a step ladder digital um, domain, if that makes sense. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, where that comes into practical application is, I forget the theorem or whatever it might be called, but essentially the rule of thumb is you can hear a frequency that is half the, the size of the sample rate that you're recording at. So, or you have the potential. Yeah. So let me just say that same thing another way. Yeah, so go ahead. if you if you have a frequency, an audio frequent an audible frequency to accurately represent it, you need to have at least double the sample rate of that frequency. So in other words, if you want it to accurately represent 440 hertz, the minimum sample rate you would need is double that, which is 880 hertz. Exactly. Um so if we and this makes sense cuz if we think about our example from earlier, um old telephone lines. I don't know who t who's spoken on a telephone line recently because <laughs> we all have cell phones now. <laughs> um, but old telephones, they worked at 800 hertz. And what you're hearing, what makes it sound low quality is everything above 4,000 hertz is rolled off. It's not mm. being reproduced at all. So any of those high crisp S sounds that you hear from my voice coming through this mic, it's not going to be reproduced at all coming through a telephone. 
Um, and similarly, you don't have as much of a problem with the cell phone because it's still reproducing 8,000 hertz, which is really starting to get up there. But there is definitely a difference in a cell phone signal in comparison to a vocal that you hear on an album or on Spotify. Yeah, that's a great point. That's the main reason why is, uh, is sample rate. Okay. Exactly. So now we're going to get into the controversial stuff. So, <laughs> <laughs> so 44.1, 44,100 hertz is the red, the red book standard for uh, recorded music. All CDs are produced in that format. Uh, I would... I would think that most streaming services are at 44.1.2. Am I wrong about that? Does Apple... Well, I know the title and Apple, they might they might have switched over to... In fact, I think Apple switched to 48 kilohertz recently. I, think they're, I thought they were lower than that. Because I know, like, the you know, best MP3s... I think all MP3s encoders... This may not be true anymore. We should look it up. But I thought all MP3 coders lopped off everything above 16 kilohertz anyway. They, so which means I'm assuming I'm assuming they're sampling at like, I don't know, 32 or something like that. But I could be wrong. Well, I think you're right about that. But I meant their Apple format, if and especially oh, through okay, streaming okay. services too. Because I think I okay. I think I read an article recently where they switched to only, um, they're only encoding in 48 kilohertz from now on, which is important. Okay. Which is important if you're submitting stuff that you want to be Apple certified, I guess, with their with their process, so they won't accept anything that's lower than 48. And I think that Tidal does 96 kilohertz streaming, which is a little bit ridiculous, but you can have that if you want it. I guess we'll get into maybe some of the reasons of why would you pick a higher sample rate? Uh, or why would you pick to go with just the CD quality uh, recording-wise? So. There's a couple reasons. Wait, wait, before we do that, what sample rate do you record at? I was thinking about maybe getting into this after explaining the reasons. Okay, but okay, we'll, okay. We'll, sorry, we'll, sorry. No, do no, it's thing. fine. It's fine. No, I, th <laughs> I, th I think you're right for stopping me because I, I want to, we should let each other, well, we should let the audience know like what we're doing personally. So as far as I know, Vadim, you still record at an ancient stone age 44.1 kilohertz <laughs> sample rate not still though yeah i i i do record currently at 44.1 most things but i used to record for years at 88.2 so twice as good what <laughs> <laughs> that's a loaded that's a loaded statement it's it's twice as high it's 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 twice as much twice as many samples yeah but anyway go on yeah go on. well i like this though because this is i mean i can hear the people in the audience right now like they're picking sides already <laughs> yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna go hold on i'm gonna put on a, my shirt and tie so this is really getting into like litigation territory <laughs> yeah. I, I feel like <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I've been recording and running my studio at 48 kilohertz for probably the last three or four years. Okay. And um, I think before we get into our reasons why, I want to, <laughs> I'm really curious to hear why you decided to switch to go back down, not not just to the next step down, which would would have been... Um, 48 but you decided to just record everything at cd quality but um before we get into that i want to talk about maybe some of the reasons why you would pick a higher sample rate you know what are sure. what are some of the pros and cons 
and then we could talk about why we've settled on what we're doing and if we could change each other's minds. Because <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm open to having my mind changed too. Uh, but I think that there are four different reasons I think I have here. Yeah, there's four main reasons why you would want to record at a higher sample rate. So, and I, and I put this maybe in order of importance, at least the first three are in order of importance. One, you get a higher, I called it recording quality, but you're essentially capturing, <laughs> you're essentially capturing a, a lot more high frequencies that are supersonic, like uh, frequencies that the human ear won't ever be able to hear because the upper range of human hearing is uh, 20,000 hertz. And mine's not even that high. I did a hearing test on myself in my studio with a sine wave and mine tops out at around 16,000 hertz which I think is pretty typical for people maybe over the age of 20. Like, it's kind of sad to see yeah. your, your hearing kind of rolls off pretty quickly, but anything up there is very whistly anyways. You're not missing too much. Um, but so that's the first reason, um, the recording quality. Uh, the second reason would be avoiding foldback aliasing, which uh, mm. I'm really interested to talk about here and and get your um, thoughts on this. The third reason would be uh, you get to lower your latency, but you have a caveat with that because you also increase your CPO load as well. So it's harder on your CPU, but you have mm -hmm. less latency. Uh, and then the fourth reason is, for whatever reason, let's say you specifically want to slow down samples, especially of um, high frequency content. And the higher sample rate that you work with, the more easily you're gonna be able to do that and not hear artifacts. Yes, yes, definitely. Um, I would say the ones I'm aware of there are, the ones I'm aware of and I agree with are two <laughs> and four. So okay. uh, foldback aliasing, which I, like a couple of years ago, I looked at a video on it. It was awesome. I was like, I understand this, but now I can't tell you what it is, but <laughs> it's a very real thing. I remember I was super convinced. And also if you're going to be doing any kind of audio processing effects, especially with like pitch shifting or time stretching, if you're like, if you're doing like, you know, you're making a loop and then you're like time stretching it or, or stretching it out, or having a higher sample rate will definitely let you keep a higher quality as you go through that kind of processing. So I'm with you there. I actually do that a lot. Okay. Um, G give me a use case. So you want to put a bass drop of a sample that you found on the internet in a song, and it doesn't, it doesn't fit the length of your, uh, for whatever song application. So you have to stretch it to twice the length. And gotcha. I have so many samples that I've put into songs that if you had sold them, they sound so crappy because they're at that, lower sample rates, but in the context of a mix, you can't ever tell. Great point. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really, that's a really valid use case there. Um, of course the, the limiting thing there is you're really limited to whatever sample rate the sample was recorded at, right? Right. Like if you, if you downloaded an MP3 off of YouTube, even if your session is running at 192, like it's kind of like those old movies where they're looking at security footage and the guy's like, enhance, enhance. Like, no, the resolution isn't there. Right, you exactly. <laughs> you can't get it back, right? But yeah, that's a really good, that's a good point though. Yeah, so if you're 
for whatever reason, you're recording your own samples or maybe doing sound effects, it might be useful and, and you need to slow them down. It might be useful to record at a higher sample rate just for those parts. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. Now, let me ask you this. What's, um, so with all this, I'm listening, I'm, I'm thinking, well, what the hell? I'll just record everything at 192. Like you mentioned one downside is CPU load. What's another downside? Okay. That's good. Um, so probably the biggest concern is disk drive space. Because uh, essentially at 192, you are, for every song, let's just talk in terms of songs. Uh, but for every song you would have recorded at 44.1 CD quality, now you're taking up four times the amount of space at 192. And audio files already take up so much space um, that if, I mean, you really have to have a ton of space if you want to be able to do that kind of a thing or just keep buying hard drives. I mean, you could do that too. Yeah, and so like a typical session that, you know, for like a rock song could be up around three gigabytes for me, which is again at 44.1 kilohertz. If I were that same session at 88.2 would be six gigabytes. It would be twice, twice as big. So that's, that's one of the downsides. Yep. That's, I mean, that's a significant amount, you know, and then let's say they do a 10 song album. That's 60 gigabytes. Yeah. That's a lot. Um, so yeah. Uh, the second, the second downside is basically we touched on this and I think that that's kind of like the inside joke while we're, why we're both laughing about <laughs> this kind of argument that we're having is that, you know, does this, does any of this really matter? Can anybody actually hear the difference? I think is a very legitimate point. Um, so is it, is it even worth like concerning yourself with higher sample rates because nobody might actually be able to hear any difference. Uh, but the third very real problem is jitter starts to become a problem at very high sample rates. And we're mostly talking... Clock jitter, like on your converter? Yeah. And we're mostly talking okay. above 96 uh, kilohertz. I didn't even know about that. So yeah, that that's really interesting. So what that is, is like you're a digital system again, because it's a discrete system. So it's taking some number of samples per second. It needs to have something called a clock, which is basically telling it how, you know, when to take samples and clock jitter is basically inconsistencies in that clock signal that can also, what does it do? It also creates artifacts. Yeah, because what happens is, um, so let's just imagine that you're watching a clock and you're watching the second hand go by. Um, the equivalent of jitter would be is if that second hand wasn't passing at seconds um, every time. So let's say it goes by, it's, it's ticking along fine every second, and then for five seconds, it just starts ticking at 1.5 seconds every time. And then all of a sudden it goes back to every 0.7 seconds, it starts to uh, continue ticking on. So when that wave gets mm. reproduced, it's, uh, it's not reproduced in a correct way anymore because of the clock jitter that was introduced. So you have a wave that's malformed essentially. Interesting. And you're saying that that's, it becomes an issue at actually at higher sample rates. Yeah. Like really high sample rates. And I think that makes sense because when you start taking a lot more slices of a section, you're essentially taking a microscope and it would be like you're looking at something through a microscope and you keep, uh, increasing your optical zoom and all of a sudden things aren't quite as defined and precise anymore. So your clock isn't able to 
consistently make those cuts anymore. It I see. it's kind of like, yeah, if I just have to keep a beat, you know, like this slow, it's really easy to keep a steady beat. But if I have to go really fast, there's no way that I can keep a consistent beat anymore. You're introducing more error, I guess. I see. Yeah, interesting. Good luck editing that. So <laughs> <laughs> I can see your face on that. <laughs> no, no, that's good, man. That's good. Yeah. This is great stuff. So so the reason I recorded at 88.2 originally was as follows. I know that CD Redbook, as you said, is 44.1 kilohertz. And my, my reasoning was, okay, well, if I record a double that at 88.2, I'm picturing my dots, my, my sample points. Well, 44.1 is exactly half of 88.2. So it would be a really clean kind of down sample, right? Where my thought process was like 48, you can't really divide 44.1 by 48, right? It doesn't give you an even. So that was my like voodoo magical explanation and i recorded at 88.2 and everything sounded great yeah and then i realized like okay mp3s most mp3s people are listening to are 320 kilobits per second and as i said i know you can do this example load up an mp3 and run it through like a frequency analyzer everything above 16 kilohertz is lopped off anyway on mp3s this Hmm. is how people listen to music these days so I switched to 44.1, again, on this principle of, okay, 44.1 kilohertz means theoretically I can capture audio up to 22 kilohertz, which is above the threshold of human hearing. And I don't really, if I can't hear it, why do I care about it? Yeah. That was my reasoning. And plus when I did it, when I switched to 44.1, I couldn't tell the difference between my 88.2 sessions and my 44.1 sessions. So I thought, you know what? People are listening to MP3s anyway. I'm going to save on hard on hard disk space here. And I do occasionally run 88.2 still if I'm doing the things we talked about. If I'm going to be using like loops or doing heavy processing, I may run that he- um, higher sample rate. But for my everyday work, I don't think it's necessary. I don't, I can't hear a difference, I guess. And so if I can't hear a difference, I'm not going to do it basically. <laughs> I think that's all fair. I almost but let me actually let me let me put a little caveat on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not that's not quite fair. I, I do think there is something to be said for. We always talk about, you know, the the road to the best quality possible is consists of lots of little incremental steps. And there are some things that both of us have talked about we that we do that we know make some tiny, tiny difference. Yeah. And all those little tiny, tiny differences along the way do add up to a bigger result. So I'm not trying to convince anybody to record at 44.1 um, or anything lower than you're comfortable with because I do think there's something to be said for like you buy a little bit of a nicer cable, right? It's a tiny, tiny incremental difference. But yeah. over the course of your entire recording chain, those little differences might add up. So that's my caveat to my own uh, <laughs> my own position. Yeah. I guess I basically agree with you. I guess uh, my reasonings for choosing 48 is is kind of that reason that we were just that you just mentioned um mm. um the little incremental betterings of you know trying to get a little bit better than you could possibly be. Yeah, I could sure. I could record at 441 and be fine with it, but I kind of figured well, what if I record something that wants to be processed or put on a DVD. It would be nice to have that sample rate already embedded into the project than rather, I guess, upsampling. 
essentially. Totally. What totally. I totally agree with you. And and upsampling is something that most DOS can handle. Like a lot of times I'll use like if I just want like a little sound effect or something, like a car door slamming, you know, I might pull an MP3 off the internet. You can load that MP3 into your session and your session will kind of upsample it. What that means is even if it's at a lower resolution, it'll kind of it'll take that file and make it at your session resolution. Now, you don't gain any quality by doing that, but it lets it allows it to be processed along with everything else. So right. that is possible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I guess that's kind of my reasoning is I, I felt that, uh, yeah, I could afford to get a little bit better than 44.1 without really adding too much um, size to my recordings. Because yeah, man. then I thought, because the, the next obvious answer or the next obvious question would be, well, if you're willing to go to 48, why not 88? And I thought, well, that much of a quality difference, I don't think is going to be noticeable for the amount of disk space it's going to take up. Yeah, man. I, you know what? I thought, I thought we were going to have a more of a, more of, of a heated a debate, but yeah. I think ultimately, ultimately we, uh, we respect each other's positions. Yeah. So I think I that's mean, good. <laughs> I think that it's, um, I, I think a couple other things are worth being said about it too. Um, because, and part of the reason is I'm not going to take a hard line on this because like, I'm, even though I've read a bunch of articles where I, I think that people are very entrenched in their beliefs about this one way or the other, I'm, I'm really not convinced. I've heard people say that recording symbols from a drum kit at 48 kilohertz makes a difference. Like, Really? And symbols specifically, you said? Yeah, and I think it might... I don't know if it's related to the foldback aliasing I was talking about or not. So I should mention exactly what that is. I mentioned it in passing really quick. So what foldback aliasing is, is when um, you have a harmonic and through processing, whether that is uh, adding a compressor that's analog modeled or saturation or distortion you create additional frequencies uh, up above that harmonic. And then, mm. then through clipping, and this is the most common, there's a few different ways that this uh, anti-aliasing or foldback aliasing can happen. But the most common way that I read about that can happen is if you clip your converters. So essentially that there is a... With, so you're, in other words, you're clipping your converters with like super high frequency exactly. uh, signal. So even though you can't hear it, you're clipping the converters yes. right, with it. And that's going to do something yeah. Be- undesirable. Yeah, because there are, um, there are low-pass filters put on all converters to kind of keep any of those bad um, harmonics from coming through into your audio because they're all nasty and they're all mathematical multiplications. So they're not musical in that sense. Uh, so they're all inside of your converter, but if you clip your converter past that point where the low pass filter is, that's where those foldback, um, that fullback aliasing can happen. And so what happens is you mm. you reproduce harmonics that are a mere image of the difference between half of your sample rate, uh, half of your sample rate uh, below and half of your sample rate above um, minus the difference of that frequency of the harmonic. So if you're if you're recording at 44.1, half of your sample rate is 21 
and a half or 21.05. And if you have a harmonic that's happening at, let's say, 20, or that's not a good example, 16 kilohertz, then you're also going to, and you clip your converter, you're also going to be reproducing a harmonic that's the difference on top of that. And so... That's very mathematical. I'm sorry to all of you who don't want to hear me do math problems uh, in our podcast, but essentially you get rid of that problem by recording at much higher sample rates because that difference between what those harmonics are and half of your... You know, that video I saw is all coming back to me now. That was, you did a nice job explaining that. Okay, so let me, let me see if I can summarize that. So through your, you know, whatever you're processing your sound through, whether it's compressors or whether it's just even your preamp... You may be generating harmonics that even though they're outside of the audible spectrum, they will clip your converters. And when that happens, the converters can generate frequencies that are actually in the audible spectrum, and that's bad. So by recording at a higher sample rate, you can actually move those foldback harmonics to also above yes. the audible spectrum. Yes. And that is actually very compelling um it's actually interesting because I, ha- I have this hardware eq that i really really love it's um the dangerous Bax eq mm. and one of the things i read the manual because i i always read manuals you should That's, read the manual you know, if, I, if, <laughs> if i invest money in something i always want to read the manual but anyway one of the things they say there which is really interesting is that it has it has both um a high pass and a low pass filter and one of the things they said in there, which I didn't fully understand until now, I think, was that you can use those filters. And what they said was to reduce stress on your converters. Hmm. And I think that's what they were talking about, was even to use it during tracking to kind of lop off some of those inaudible frequencies and make it easier on the converter. So, you know what, man? That was, um, you got, I think you got more scientific than I did towards the end there. I don't feel so bad anymore about my, about my no, uh, you never early, I, I, early rants. I feel like I'm as nerdy <laughs> as you. you. I just haven't okay. had the episodes to get into it as much as maybe you have. So, how, many, how many listeners do you think will still be with us by this point? Maybe 50%, but that's all good because <laughs> they're, the ones that re- <laughs> they're the ones that really cared to hear about this anyways. And so, you know, yeah, I'm fine with like if, if you know, you didn't really care about all this bit depth and sample rate, that's, that's totally fine. We're going to be talking about other stuff in the future as well. But I thought it was worth taking a listen to and um, just discussing and seeing where we disagree and where we, um, you know, maybe might agree on things. So I guess what's our... I, I will say, man, you've, you, you have... I will reconsider. I will consider now. Oh, I'm going okay, to okay. research that, uh, that foldback aliasing thing. Now that it's coming back to me, I'm like, okay, I gotta, I gotta reconsider my methods here. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna play around with that. I think the the TLDL, right? Too long didn't listen version. Yes. Of, of what we're saying here is, when you're recording, set your sessions up for 24 bit. That's the bit depth. Again, that's your kind of dynamic range resolution. And on sample rate, you definitely want to be at least 44.1. Um, and then Ben just laid out some compelling reasons why you may want to be. Above that, if you're working with video, you definitely want to try to be at 48 because that's what video uses. Um, and there's some compelling reasons to even be higher than that. The limiting factor is CPU load and also hard disk space. So play around with that. And I think we can 
maybe we can try this. So I'm I'm actually recording my audio here at 44.1, right? And you're recording yours at 48. There yes. may not be a difference at that uh, between those two, but maybe we can try some crazy time shift uh, processing. Really stretch it out and um, see if there's a, a noticeable quality that would difference be fun. between the two. That would be fun. I'd like that. Yeah, let's do that. All right, let's 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 lay that down as a challenge. Okay. Um, we'll set up some parameters and maybe we'll we'll play that as a bonus or something or put it on the Facebook group. All right, that works, man. Sounds good, guys. Well, cool, thank man. thank you all for listening. Uh, once again, uh, I'm Ben from uh, DreamLoud Studio. You can find my website at uh, dreamloudstudio.com. Uh, hear my portfolio and maybe read some blog articles and stuff like that. And then, uh, Vadim, why don't you plug your studio as well? Right on. I'm Vadim from Calm Frog Recording. You can hit me up on Instagram, Calm Frog Recording, all one word. Check out my website, calmfrogrecording.com. I have a portfolio up there as well. Uh, you got anything else to add? No, I don't think so. Um, got more things to announce in the near future coming up, so I'm excited about that. Okay, cool. Shows and stuff like that, but... Um, yeah, man, you got some cool shows coming up. Yeah, really cool shows. And uh, and also the, the EP is dropping, I saw. It is. Like, uh, in a little bit here, a couple of weeks. Yeah. Probably, maybe by the time this episode is out, it'll already be out, actually. Probably, yeah. But yeah, we're really, we're really excited about that. Um, really thankful for all you listeners out there and for the Facebook community. So keep sharing the word if you know anybody that this can help. Yeah. Yeah, right on. And... Um, Keep sending us questions, whether the, through the Facebook group or to, to us directly on Instagram or whatever. Um, we can, uh, we'll post them in the, in the Facebook group and have some discussions and maybe even do some, some live videos if, uh, if there's interest in that. Right on. Well, as we say every week, uh, make sure you check yourself before you wreck yourself. Have a good one, guys. If you're enjoying the podcast, take a minute to leave a rating wherever you like to listen to it or share it with your friends on social media. Also, Benjamin and I are working engineers and we love helping people turn ideas into finished productions. So if you're interested in working with one of us or just want to discuss a project you're working on, reach out. You can find my work at calmfrogrecording.com. Get me on Instagram at calmfrogrecording or shoot me an email vk at calmfrogrecording.com and you can check Benjamin's workout at dreamloudstudio.com hit him up on Instagram at dreamloudstudio or by email ben at dreamloudstudio.com and finally join our Facebook group to engage with a whole group of friendly like-minded people who are interested in DIY recording just search for DIY recording guys on Facebook thank you so much for listening and for your continued support I'll see you next week.